If you're new here with us, uh, welcome here. My name is Matt. Uh, glad to have you here along with Tim. want to welcome you. Uh, I would invite you, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. If ever you forget yours or just don't have one, we do have them on the round tables. Kind of as you enter, you're welcome to grab them, use them. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, but we are going to be in Luke chapter 13, and I'm, I'm going to begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for, again, this time to gather. We know, Lord, that uh, in many places uh, in the world, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ are not able to gather uh, freely as we are. And so we want to pray for them. I want to begin just by praying for the global church, for those uh, for whom it's just dangerous uh, to be seen gathering, seen with the Bible, uh, to be worshiping you in any public way. And so we just pray for continued uh, perseverance for them, uh, for comfort, for strength, uh, Lord, that they would hold fast by your power and by your strength. And I pray that we would not uh, take it for granted that we can, we can gather here, uh, Lord, that we can uh, dig into your word and hear from you in this, in this way. And so I pray that, that it would be a fruitful time. Help us to, to make good use of this time. I pray, Lord, that as we turn our attention to this portion of the gospel of Luke, Holy Spirit, that you would open the, the eyes of our heart, open our minds, uh, Lord, please uh, allow us uh, not to harden our, ourselves to, to the work of your spirit. I pray that we would indeed want to, to grow as we hear from you today. And so uh, I pray for your blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to begin uh, by thinking about uh, entrances. Entrances, like doorways. Uh, entrances are, are key, uh, of course, in any like architectural thing, any building, uh, I remember uh, going uh, to visit New York City, I've been there once, and one of the things that we did when we were there was to go into the lobbies of some of the famous buildings, right, just to see, to see what it was like, just take a peek in the door. Uh, the one that stood out to me the most was the Empire State Building, not surprisingly. Uh, if you haven't been there, it's an art deco masterpiece, obviously. It's all marble, it's all recessed lighting, and interestingly, uh, in the entranceway to the Empire State Building, there is a mural of the Empire State Building, which I always thought was interesting. It's like the building wants you to know this is where you are. You're in me. I'm the Empire State Building. So uh, entrances, of course, help us to understand where we are, help us to get a sense of the purpose for the building. Uh, hotels, public buildings are usually very open, very inviting, usually lots of Lots of doors, so it's, it's easy to get in. And when you're in, they make you feel like you're supposed to be there. They want you to come through the doors. There are other buildings that are more restrictive, usually government buildings, a lot of, lot of doorways, a lot of ac uh, restricted security points, a lot of guards. Uh, in those buildings, you, you know you're not going to get very far unless you're on some sort of a list or you're, you're supposed to be there. So the reason I want us to think about entrances is that the question for us this morning is what, what does the entrance to the kingdom of heaven look like? In the Bible, there's actually two entrances mentioned. Uh, the most famous, uh, I think, just sort of in the world probably, as you think about heaven, is probably the pearly gates, right? Pearly gates, some lots of jokes about the pearly gates. Uh, they are actually in the Bible. Revelation 21, 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. If you can imagine that, that's a pretty grand entrance. I mean, if you were, you were actually walking through a, 
a giant pearl with all that kind of gold and gleaming, you would, there would be a clear sense of, of opulence and grandeur and wonder. Uh, also, you notice here that there were 12 gates. So the, clearly access is important, a lot of ways into this heavenly city. But if you look closely at that passage, what you will notice is that this grand entrance is actually just a grand entrance into the heavenly city, like the new Jerusalem. When Jesus returns, new heaven, new earth, reestablished, there's going to be the city that comes down, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be wonderful, but it's, that's not the entry to heaven itself. Like if you're walking through a giant pearl, you're probably already in heaven, is what I'm saying. So the, re so the question is then, well, what, how do we get into heaven? What does the doorway look like if you wanted to just gain access to the kingdom of heaven? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus gives a pretty clear answer about it. And if you haven't heard it before, it's, it's kind of surprising. Because he describes the entrance to heaven not as, as grand and easy to find with, with wide access. He says, in fact, that it's narrow and that it's difficult. So what I'm going to do is read through our passage. You're going to see those words in there very clearly along with some other ones that Jesus says. And then we're going to unpack it as we go. So the text won't be up on the screen just yet. Just kind of listen or read along and then we'll put the verses up as we work through it. So here's Luke 13, verse 22. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door... And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence. We, you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. It's God's word to us this morning. Uh, if you haven't guessed already, our big topic is the entrance to the kingdom of God. And we're going to see three things here that help us understand both the entranceway and the kingdom itself. So the first thing is this about the entrance to the kingdom. The door is narrow. The door is narrow. We see this in verse 24. I'll read it again. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So the obvious question I think that we would ask is why, why is the door narrow? Like why would you make a narrow door as an entrance to the king of heaven? I mean, anyone who knows anything about design or about city planning knows that bottlenecks are not a good thing. We design buildings so that people can have easy access. In fact, there's a whole segment of design called wayfinding, which, which basically means like if you look at uh, an airport entranceway, for example, especially the new ones, they don't just have a, a sign that says gates this way. They actually build the entire entryway so that you naturally move where you sh should go. So if you notice, the check-in desks are often kind of uh, angled and they kind of point you in a certain direction. 
they will have lines sometimes on the ceiling or tiles in the floor that are kind of angled in a certain way. They even have those trams, you know, those walking, moving sidewalks, because the whole point is they want to get as many people as possible in the doors through and to where they need to go. It's kind of obvious. Same thing with city planning. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars on making uh, better traffic corridors, better access. I was just over on the North Shore, and they just, over the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge, they built this huge new interchange on ramps, wider uh, access down the cut, because they want to get as many people on and off the North Shore as possible. Same thing with the Patella Bridge. They're rebuilding it. Be- part of, I mean, it's going to fall down. That's part of it. But the other reason is that they want, we were on there, and there's a big truck in front of us. It had to take up two lanes, because it was too narrow. That's not good for the flow of traffic. So the question is, if, if us, human beings with our feeble brains, can figure out this is good design, why is it that God, the greatest designer in the universe, has made the door to heaven so narrow? What, what is the deal with that? Is it poor design? Is it poor layout? Is it like those government buildings that are designed to keep certain people out? As you really think about this issue more deeply, you realize this actually is a, is a question about the nature of God. Like, he's the one who, who built the door. I, we, we often think to ourselves, you hear people think, look, if God is love, then wouldn't the entrance to the kingdom be wide open? Like one of the hotel lobbies, as many people as possible come through. You hear people, you hear people say this, right? They say, look, there are many doors to heaven. All faiths lead to God. Right? God is love. So he doesn't close the doors, he opens them, them wide. But here in the Bible... From the mouth of Jesus, it says that the door is narrow. So what's the deal with that? Well, it's, it's not about restricting access. It's all about pointing people to the door that actually works, that actually gets you where you want to go. In fact, this is even clearer uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew uh, describes the same interchange. A little more detail, Matthew seven thirteen. Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So what he's basically saying there is, look, when it comes to faith, there are a lot of doors to choose from. There are bigger doors, there are more opulent doors, there are are doors that in some ways seem more inviting there are many religions that will say, look, come as you are, stay as you are. You don't have to change at all. It's easier. But the real question is, do they actually lead to heaven? See, according to the Bible, there is only one door that gains us access to God's kingdom. And Jesus is very clear. Here he's speaking about the door, but in other, another place, John 10, he says, actually, I am the door. I am the way in. Look, look here at John 10, uh, verse 7, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. We're the sheep. All who, come, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, find rest. See, Jesus is the only true door because he is the only one who actually connects us with God. Jesus is the only one who lived a sinless life in our place. He's the only one who died an atoning death to pay for our sin. He's the only one who was raised from the grave. 
which is why it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. It's about finding the door that actually works. Uh, all of this got me to thinking about a place that we visited as a family a few years ago. Uh, we went down to Palm Desert, and when we came back up, we went through Utah, visited uh, the Grand Canyon, and visited Zion National Park. Now, I just got to tell you, if you have a choice, don't go to see the Grand Canyon. It's, it's not as amazing as Zion, incredibly. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Grand Canyon is great. I mean, go there. It's great. It's big, right? But in Zion National Park, there are these just incredible rock features, these incredible chasms. You're just right in the middle of all of this, this wonderful landscape that God created. And one of the most amazing things about it is that to enter the park from the east, which is where we were entering from, uh, they created a tunnel because it's just a big slab of, of rock. And so what they did is they carved this, this very long tunnel. That's what makes it quite impressive. Uh, here's the entrance to it. This is what we drove in, the east side. And you can see it's just, I mean, just kind of a small opening. Uh, they built it back in 1927, bored through 1.1 miles of hard rock. And it's, it's amazing. I was going to show you the video of us driving through it, but it's just kind of dark most of the time, so I thought it wouldn't be helpful. But partway through, uh, they carved into the side of the mountain uh, a window. So this is the other cool thing. Just on the slab of granite, there's this window, and as you're driving, you look out, and there's this, just this canyon. It's, it's really fantastic. There is a problem, though, with this tunnel, uh, and that is that in 1927, when they built it, the cars were smaller than they are now. They didn't have, like, the giant 30-foot-long RVs with the, you know, satellite dish on the top. And so uh, there's some restrictions. They make really clear, like, you, have, you can't drive a lot of over-height, uh, super-long vehicles through this tunnel. So here's what got me thinking about this. To use this access point, you have to conform yourself, your vehicle, to the shape of the opening. It's not the kind of tunnel you can just go and shave a little bit off, off the top. It, do, it doesn't work. So you can't go through if you are too wide or too big. And I think this is one way to think about the narrowness of the doorway into the kingdom. So go with me on this. Imagine for a moment that that big rock mountain is our sin. We are on one side. The kingdom of heaven is on another uh, we, on our own, could never, could never work our way through the rock. I mean, in our sin, we are weak, we are powerless, we have no, no tools, in a sense, no machinery. We really have no hope of connecting with God. But as we look around, we see that there are actually a lot of tunnels that people have dug. Some of them look really wide, really inviting. I mean, there are people with RVs trucking on through. And so it seems like there's a lot of ways through this mountain. But the thing is, while there are many people saying, look, this is the way, we don't actually know if that's true or not. And no one who's gone into some of those tunnels has ever come out. And so we're nervous. And we look off to the side, and we see there a narrow opening. It's kind of dark and, and, and craggy, very low. It's about the size of a of a human being. And as we approach this, this narrow opening, we look on the edge and, and we can see there's stains. It looks like stains of blood. So we're about to turn away because it just doesn't have the right vibe. But as we turn away, the Spirit of God brings to our minds these words from Jesus. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And see, we realize we realize that this is the passageway that Jesus has made for us. It's narrow because it was carved out by his own body. 
And it's stained and bloody because he bore his way through the rock with his hands and his feet to the point that his his body was a, a bloody mess. So now there is an opening and the way is clear, but to fit through the passage, we need to be conformed into his image. Not physically, you understand, but, but morally and spiritually. We need to be humbled. We need to be purified. We need to be sanctified to squeeze through the narrow door that leads into heaven. The language that Jesus uses is important here. He says we should strive to enter through the narrow door. In the Greek, that word strive is the same word for agony or to agonize, so like pain and distress. And so as we, as we think about this, this fact that there is an entryway from our reality into the kingdom of heaven, we should be struck by the, the grace and the mercy of God, right? That we as sinners who've turned our backs on God actually have a free access through to heaven itself, the perfect reality, intimacy with God. I mean, it's incredible. Mercy and love and grace, it's fantastic, but we shouldn't be surprised if there's gonna be some agony for us to make our way through. Not because we are still under God's wrath, but because in God's grace, he's going to to shape us and chisel us and conform us so that we are actually in the image of Christ, the, the one who made the passage so that we will be fit for heaven. This is how we should understand the narrowness of the door. It's not restrictive. It, it's God's grace that he would prepare us for heaven itself, again, by his power, by his strength. So here's the question I think we should ask in light of just this first section. What are we striving for in life? Like, what are we, what are we striving for in, in, in agony and, you know, working ourselves? It, it made me think of, uh, there's this app uh, called Strava. Have you heard of this? Uh, it's like a fitness app, and uh, it tracks all of your runs, your hikes, your bike rides. I don't actually have it, uh, you know, because I don't want to broadcast my fitness accomplishments, but... Um, but what it's showing us there is that people are striving. They're trying to go a little longer, a little farther, a little, a little harder. That's a good thing. There's a lot of things in life. It's good for us to strive in work, in education, in our relationships. But the thing of it is, are we striving on this key thing? Are we striving to be conformed to the image of Christ? Have we found the narrow way of Jesus that leads to life? And are we, are we asking, are we... Are we working hard by the power of God to actually change our lives, change our character, change our, the way that we are so that when we step through the door, we will, we will fit. We will be a reflection of all that Jesus is and has done. This is the narrowness of the door. It's the grace of God, but also it's the reality that we work our salvation out all our lives by his power and by his strength. So the door is narrow is the first thing. The second thing, though, that we see here is that to enter, we must be known by Jesus. We must be known by Jesus. Uh, We need to understand that this initial question was not just idle curiosity. Remember the question? Uh, Verse 23, someone asked Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, most Jews at the time believed that they were a shoo-in for heaven because they were the Jewish people, descendants of Judah, uh, God's chosen people, all, all of the guys at that feast that Jesus talked about, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was, they were their forefathers. So they figured, look, if anyone was going to gain access into the kingdom of heaven, it would be them. 
And so they assumed in asking that question that, that Jesus would respond, you know, look, not many people will enter, but you guys are in for sure. You're sons of the kingdom, right? Your, your bloodlines go all the way back to King David. Of course you will be in. What they were hoping for is to kind of be puffed up again. That they could feel superior as, as those who are in the kingdom already. But in fact, Jesus didn't puff them up because he was, he was concerned for their souls, frankly. He shocks them by describing a scene where instead of them being invited in, they are cast out. Let's look at it again. It's kind of a mini parable, starting in verse 25. He says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So what's the issue here? Well, clearly they thought they were in and they were out. But really the issue is that they thought that they were known by the master of the house and they, they weren't. Uh, that phrase where he says, I do not know where you come from, is just a way of saying, I have, I have no context for you. I have no idea what your hometown is, what your family is, your heritage. I, I, I have no depth of knowledge about you at all. Now this is important for us to get because I think that it's pretty clear for us the difference between a casual acquaintance and a true friend. But I don't think we realize that it's pretty easy to confuse those two for a time. Like just think of life circumstances that brings you into contact with people regularly. You can feel pretty close to those people. I remember in junior high, there was a group of people that I was pretty close with, right? We did, we did everything together, right? We were in theater sports together, debate team together, school announcements together, all the cool things. We did all of them together, and I felt really close to them, right? I, we would, I, I, they would be my good friends, but it didn't take long after school ended when I, I lost touch with, with all of them. I didn't realize that it was just kind of life circumstances, that we didn't, we didn't really know each other that deeply because a genuine relationship is when you, you know each other and there's a, there's a mutual loyalty and trust and perseverance as friends. That's what a genuine friendship looks like. And that's what a genuine relationship with Jesus looks like. It's not just being around him in a sense. It's not just being part of a church or or even serving, that that in of itself doesn't mean that there's a depth of knowledge. Uh, I remember for a season uh, in the early part of my faith journey where I had, I'd come to faith, I was at Willingdon Church, um, I, and I started working at the church in kids' ministry, a part-time job, helped at day camps, helped at Sunday school. I ended up you know, working on lessons. I was writing things that would help kids know more about Jesus. If you looked at me from the outside, you would think to yourself, this guy must have a pretty solid faith. But in fact, it was, it was not solid at all. I mean, there were huge areas of my life, unrepentant uh, sin that I wasn't dealing with. Uh, I, I was doing some things that brought me around Jesus, but I didn't really know Christ. I was far from him. And I remember thinking at the time, because the Spirit of God was like, convicting me about some of these things, and I was resisting. And I remember at time, I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, at least I'm working at a church, right? I mean, that's got to count for something, Right? Here, apparently, no, that's not right. In fact, that's, that's the danger that some of us have just from being, doing certain superficial things that make it seem like our faith is strong. 
See, it's hard to know for sure, but I would not be surprised if at that time I would have been the one on the outside of the door knocking, wondering, like I thought, I thought we were close. Here's the thing we need to understand. God doesn't need us to do stuff for him. God isn't looking, he doesn't have a bunch of positions to fill. And he's looking down and finding out who's, you know, doing those things. Boy, they can really greet well. Wow, they're, so, like, they're perfect for the kingdom. That's not, it's not what it is. What he really wants is to know us. He wants to know our heart and our soul. So the question we should be thinking to ourselves in light of, of this is, do we actually know Jesus? Does he actually know us? Do we have a, a, a transparent and open and vulnerable relationship where we are in the habit of actually revealing the things to him that, that are in the deepest parts of our soul? See, the sad reality of this scene is that it's, it's a genuine tragedy for those who are on the outside of the door. We use that term tragedy a lot, usually just in reference to something bad that happens, right? We talk about a tragic accident, a tragic flood, a tragic earthquake. But tragedy, in the classical sense, means uh, something bad that happens because of something that's wrong in you. It, it's like your own fault. This is where you get the term tragic flaw. This is why Shakespeare's tragedies are so compelling, because there's all these characters that, that bring ruin upon themselves, right? Macbeth, full of ambition. Hamlet, full of indecisiveness. Romeo, he's so impulsive. Romeo, just, could you wait a minute to see if she's actually dead? Why did you have to be so caught up in the moment? Just wait. Everything's ruined. See, their misfortunes are tragic because they could have been avoided. And that's, that's the sense we see here with these people on the outside of the door. They, they, they were around the master of the house. They had an opportunity. He, he was actually there in the streets teaching. He, they did eat and drink with him, but they never actually took the opportunity to know him well. They held back. And because of that, they were cast out. And here we have a picture of, of ultimate judgment and separation. Verse, verse 28 is a picture of hell. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. I think it's helpful for a moment to just think about the mindset of those people on the outside. Like, why didn't they, why didn't they seek to know the master of the house? I'm sure they had reasons why they held back. Just like we often have reasons for holding back, from knowing Jesus more, from, from entering more deeply into our faith. A lot of times I think it's because we don't want to lose control. I mean, we, we feel better when our hands are on the wheel of our lives. We know that really submitting to God means kind of taking your hands off the wheel in a sense and allowing the Spirit of God to lead us, which means probably we're going to be led into situations that are very uncomfortable for us or kind of scary or out of our depth, and we don't, we don't like that, so we, we hold on. There's lots of reasons why we, we don't open up. We're, we're just shame. The lies of the enemy, guilt, that God couldn't forgive us for certain things. There's lots of reasons why even though we kind of know Jesus, we don't, really, we don't really know him. And he doesn't really know us. Jesus says to each one of us, look, be careful that in your quest for self-preservation, that you don't find yourselves on the wrong side of the door of heaven. That you're so concerned, that we are so concerned about 
about feeling at peace and feeling safe that we actually miss the, the greater peace that comes from actually submitting to him. See, the clear message of the Bible is not, hey, heaven, don't worry about it. You're not gonna miss it. It's easy. It's up on the right. Okay, you can't miss it. That's not it at all. What we see here really clearly is actually it's easy to miss. People miss it all the time. In fact, there are probably people in this room that are missing it right now because the way is narrow because you have to strive to enter it because you have to be known by the master. So again, are we seeking to be truly known by Jesus? Like, do we have a, a pattern of examining, of asking the Spirit of God to examine our hearts? I mean, listen, it's not that God doesn't know what's in there, but there's a difference in heart between, between saying, search me, O Lord. Bring to my mind those things which are against your word, which are disobedient, which are faithless, and help me to see them so I can turn from them fully and turn to you. Sometimes I think we worry about the reaction of Jesus, but I kind of remind you of his words. He says, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to stop relying on like a casual association with the Son of God and realize that he, he loves us so much that he wants to really know us. He wants for us to be open so that he can have his way in us, certainly, but, but really that's so that he can draw us near to himself. So to be known by Jesus is to close the door to tragedy and to open the door to life and love and hope. And we see that hope here in just the last portion of our, of our text. So here's the, the third thing about this entrance to the kingdom. The door is open for all. The door is open for all. Uh, the beauty of the kingdom of God is that while the narrow door is narrow, it is open to the widest spectrum of people possible. We see this in verse 29 and 30. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. It's really important we, we grasp this, this truth about the kingdom and about God's message to the world because uh, there are a lot of people today especially, especially in the West, that would say, look, Christianity and diversity can't, can't go together, that they don't go together. There's a lot of people who would, who would characterize Christianity as a religion of white male imperialists, and there are some reasons for that. Throughout history, imperialism, slavery, segregation were often perpetrated by those professing, professing to be Christians. There, there sadly is a legacy of harm in certain parts of the world uh, that has been perpetrated by the church. In Canada, we know the residential schools are an example of that. In the US, the segregated churches are an example of that. But when we actually look at the New Testament, it becomes very clear that, that these things didn't flow out of the Bible. They were in opposition to it. And this, this point is made very clearly in a great book. I highly recommend. We actually sold it for a time. Uh, it's this book, Confronting Christianity, by Rebecca McLaughlin. And she has a chapter on Christianity and diversity. And, and she points out, through the words of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, this truth. So here's two quotes um, from, from Martin Luther King Jr. First, he says this at the time. This is 1960. He said, I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation one of the shameful tragedies that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours. 
there he's speaking against those churches which are segregated and at peace with it, right? Black church, white church, and, and those are in the, the, the white people are thinking this is just the way it should be. And Martin Luther King Jr. is saying, no, no, that's not how it should be. That's a shame on you if you think that's, that's what the Bible says. His next quote makes it very clear. He says, any church that stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ. He's saying the whole heart of God is that there would be one people from, from many tribes, many nations. This is the picture we get in the book of Revelation. In fact, the truth of the matter is that Christianity is the most multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic movement in human history, like bar none. And it's not, it's not difficult to see. Just think about it. It begins with a group of Jews in Jerusalem a few thousand years ago, and from that, almost right away, spreads to the Gentiles, the Romans, all through the Mediterranean, up into Asia, eventually to Europe, and it spreads throughout the entire globe to the point that today, the fastest growing churches are in, are in China, in Iran, in all sorts of other places in the world. And the point that Jesus is making here is that this isn't by accident. This is by design. It's not about race. It's not about heritage. not about status or education. The message of the gospel is a message of hope and inclusion for all. Which means that if, if there are voices in our head that lead us to believe that we are always going to be last in a sense, or unwanted in some way, or excluded in some way, the words of Jesus here are, are very clear. We all enter the same way. We are all welcome. It's a narrow door. We all have to stoop to enter. We should expect to be humbled. But the hope and the wonder and the grace of God reveals the fact that when we make our way through, we will see a true picture of God's humanity. And that we should have this mindset as we seek to evangelize, as we seek to, to create this, this culture here and now, because right now it's a picture of the kingdom to come. I want to end with a word of exhortation. Because really this is what this text is about. is Jesus speaking to a group of people who think they got it figured out. Right? They think they understand the Canaan. They think they're in. And the words very clearly is, don't be so sure. And I want to read this uh, passage from Hebrews. Because it makes very clear, this is, should be our mindset. It's a healthy thing for us to be evaluating and working and striving within our faith. So here's how it reads. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see what it's saying? It's saying, brothers and sisters, hey, hey, church, as long as it's called today, it's a day to examine ourselves. Right? As long as you have breath, as long as you're alive, as long as you're conscience, as long as Jesus, Jesus hasn't returned, it's a day for us to strive for, through our faith. That we would encourage each other. That we would ask the Spirit of God, like, help me to see clearly the state of my heart. I don't want to think I'm in when I'm actually out. It's not that we should doubt the power of the salvation of God, but that we should recognize that the gift of faith is a gift, but it's one then that we respond to. 
There should be a responding in our lives. There should be a striving in our lives with, with the joy of seeing the, the narrow passageway but the light on the other side. And sometimes we just take it for granted. And when we do that, we're in a dangerous place because there's a lot of other openings, a lot of other doorways that are gonna vie for our attention. And we can get to a place where we are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and believe the lies that, that anyway can lead to our hope and our joy when in fact there is one. And his name is Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I do pray for us. I pray for everyone here. Lord, I pray for those that, that maybe aren't at a place where they would say, yeah, I really, I really believe these things. I, I have this kind of a faith. I believe that Jesus is the son of God and died for my sins. I pray that this would be a day where, where there are good questions that well up in their mind and their heart where Holy Spirit, you move within them to, to convict them over the areas of, of, of their sin and they can see clearly who you are, Jesus. And I pray that if there are those people here that we'd have an opportunity to have conversations with them and that you would continue your good work in their lives. But really, Lord, I pray for all of us, all of us, that we would not take for granted that there is a wide open passageway to heaven and that we can't miss it and we're just gonna stumble our way into it. That's not what you say. Jesus, you tell us very clearly you are the one who made the way. We praise you for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that through the hard rock of our sin, you did make a way where there was no way. But I pray that we would not take for granted the fact that we need to be shaped. We need to be chiseled and honed. Lord, there's gonna be hard work that is done in our soul and our character. And maybe right now is a time when you have been chipping away at us and maybe we're resistant, maybe we're resentful. Help us, Lord Jesus, to, to, to soften our hearts to the work you're doing, to realize it is because of your love and because of your care that you are shaping us in this way. And Lord, that we would be part of it. We would strive by your power and by your grace to enter the narrow door. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.